Alright, this is uh, the first ever episode of Left Brand Podcast, a podcast I came up with on the way home from the movie 1917, uh, a film that enraged me to a degree that I decided to re-download GarageBand, uh, get back on Twitter, and attempt to become internet famous. As always, uh, producing with me is Moose, the cat, and... So the idea behind this podcast is basically, um, there's already a lot of great film podcasts out there, a lot of them very good, a lot of them very technical, very critical, theoretical, what have you. Um, A lot of them are also very long. The idea behind this podcast is to make a podcast that you could maybe listen to in like 10, 15 minutes, get a little bite size of some ideas uh, without having to listen to me so long that you want to kill yourself. Um, and on that note, I thought it would be appropriate. Today is February 6th, 2019. We are coming up on the weekend of the 9th. The 9th, of course, being the Oscars, a, an event that if you're interested in film, you probably, like me, think every year, this sucks, I don't care about it, who gives a fuck, and then you watch it, and then you get excited that maybe something interesting will happen, and then nothing does, and Green Book wins, and you get angry and go to bed. Um... And so this year, 1917, as a little bit of background, this is a World War I movie directed by Sam Mendes, shot by Roger Deakins, um, who's a phenomenal cinematographer, shot Skyfall, uh, shot Blade Runner 2049, which is one of the best-looking movies of the last couple of years, and countless other just fantastic films. Uh, Mendes, of course, directed Skyfall, so this is not the first time they've worked together. He also directed Spectre, American Beauty, Jarhead, and the criminally underrated Road to Perdition. He also directed the absolute um, shit heap, I guess, uh, Revolutionary Road. And so this is his new movie. It's a repairing of the two of them. And the idea behind this movie is two soldiers have got to get from point A to point B to relay a message that a group of other soldiers, World War I, um, the group at point B, is about to walk into a massive trap and be slaughtered by the Germans. Um it's a pretty conventional narrative. The kind of sticking point for the film is that this is all shot, or rather, this is all edited to look like it is one continuous take. Um, I suppose two continuous takes. There's a pretty big cut in the middle of the film that's pretty obvious. Um, if you are watching closely, you can see a good amount of other places where the film was cut. But the idea is that it's just this extremely immersive experience, almost like a. Um, a lot of people have compared it to a video game and sort of you are there you are kind of just the avatar behind these characters heads almost like a first person shooter going from you know level one to level two to level three to level four to finally this ending battle where you have to relay the message don't go over the wall the germans are setting up a trap um this, this should not be a spoiler but if it is it is a spoiler for 1917 as well as actual history which is that the uh, English do not get slaughtered. They do end up, you know, staying in the war and beating the Germans, along with help from a multitude of allies. And the film on its face, and the reason I wanted to start with this film, is because right now it's it's done pretty well everywhere, uh, box office-wise, but also award show-wise. It 
one best picture drama at the Golden Globes, a little bit out of nowhere that it swept the BAFTAs, not as surprising given that it's an English film, but it but it's kind of primed and ready to be the best picture coronation here uh, Sunday night. Um, it's it's kind of a movie that I don't think a lot of people had on their radar as best picture material. I think people thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, maybe, more likely The Irishman, um, maybe Marriage Story, potentially Little Women. All those movies are now chasing uh, 1917. Oddly enough, the only movie that seems like it might have enough of a kind of outside puncher's chance is Parasite, the Korean film by Bong Joon-ho, um, which is, first of all, it is the best movie of the year. But second of all, for a foreign film to kind of be the second odds-on money w- winner um, for Best Picture going into Oscars weekend is a little wild. And so while we could be disappointed that 1917 is almost certainly going to walk away with the prize. The fact that it's being pushed as hard as it is by Parasite is, it's a little exciting. And so that's, that's a positive note to think about before we get into uh, the real meat of this, which is why 1917 for all of its visual splendor and beauty. And this is a very visually stunning film um, is pretty, pretty terrible as a movie. Um, and so, first we need to break down a couple things. The first is what you're trying to accomplish when you do a long shot. And so when, you, when you're using a long shot in cinema, and there's some really famous examples, whether it's a whole movie like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, although there are a couple hidden cuts in that, a uh, more recent one like Birdman, again, hidden cuts but made to look like a seamless shot, um, you're going for a sort of you know completely immersive experience closer to something... Not exactly like theater, but in the sense that the the illusory boundary between yourself and the screen, yourself and the conventions of cinema, of cuts, of you know, slow-mo, fast motion, super special effects, it's supposed to break that wall down to make it seem like what you're watching is more real than what you're used to watching. Other times, you know, this is used in a flashier manner, directors showing off. Um, that's not to, by any means to say that's a bad thing. Uh, one of the most famous shots in the history of cinema is the entering the Copacabana through the back of the kitchen and Goodfellas, all one take, kind of show Henry Hill walking into this world, takes you along with him, shows you, enamors you with the world of what, you know, who are the wise guys? This is what you're coming for. This is why they want to be there. This is a glamorous world. This is, a, is and you're getting shown in the back, you're getting shown right to that front table. feels like you are the toast of the town. Same with the opening shot in Boogie Nights brings you right into the dance club, sets the stage for the entire film's kind of feel, the soundtrack, the time period, while also kind of spinning all over the place, showing you a lot of the big players, before we get to Burt Reynolds eventually meeting Mark Wahlberg in the back room. So when you use it short-term like that, it can be used very effectively, establishing things, showing you this is what the world feels like, this is what the world looks like, this is, who this wor- this is where this movie's taking place. When you try to extend it over a whole film, you know, it's, it's, it is trying to break down that barrier because we know cinema is artificial. We go into the movie theater, we're sitting in a nice comfortable seat, even if we're watching people get blown up on screen. We know, obviously, that what we're watching is an illusion. Even if we're watching a documentary where the footage has still been cut, compressed, uh, edited, reordered, and such, we know there is an illusion of cinema. It is a simulacra of something real, and when you go to it all one shot, you are trying to dissolve that 
simulacra, that um, that sort of simulation of the real to the thinnest possible level to make it almost nothing, nothing but a gossamer between yourself, what's going on on screen, and thinking, oh my god, I'm here, this is really happening. And there have been plenty of films that have done this, um, you know, plots that work in real time. I think one, Nick of Time, I believe that has Johnny Depp in it. Um, I also believe it is quite bad. And so 1917 is doing this on a grand scale, and this a scale that would, is very difficult to achieve given that a war movie requires hundreds of thousands of extras, um, special effects, all sorts of set designs, changes in time ter in terms of light and day, uh, what Roger Deakins accomplishes in terms of just getting the, photo the photography of the film to look right is really, really astounding, um, given how many variables are at play here. I don't even want to think about how much time they had to spend rehearsing only to have, you know, somebody fall down in the background and have to start a whole set over. And when you do see some of these large set pieces, it really is very impressive. The problem with that is, in a two-hour movie, when we're watching something that's supposed to be happening essentially in real time, and we know a mission is supposed to go from point A to point B, like we said, I believe at the beginning of the film they're told it'll take them about eight to nine hours to get from where their company is to where B company is. And so already we're going to have to think, okay, well, we're compressing nine hours into two. Something's going to happen here. The other issue is sheer distance. They're going roughly eight to nine miles. That's been discussed a couple times throughout the film. Um, you know, this is not miles on a track. This is miles through trenches, war zone, um, underground trenches, burned out cities. Um, so that that's going to take some time too. And so we already have an issue with Okay, how is the, the physical space and time of what's going on in 1917 going to conform with how Mendez and Deacons are presenting it, which is in this single shot? And so right there, we already have a setup for, you could do this in a pretty interesting way, or you could run into some problems. And so the second concept we need to discuss a little bit here is the idea of what montage is and why it's used. And so when I say montage, I don't mean um, montage in the sense that is typical in cinema. Um, I think when we think of montage, now we you know think of you know oh it's the big the big training montage or the falling in love romance montage. You see dates all across the city, a big kiss maybe at the end, or see Rocky out in Siberia lifting weights, pulling trees, um, you know, so he can beat the Soviet Union in a boxing match. Um, montage itself. That's what montage has come to mean now. Originally, montage, the term, just means a collection of shots that are put together to create meaning. So when you see a standard camera set up in a film, you know, with a master shot, A shot, B shot, maybe over one person's shoulder, looking at, over person A's shoulder, looking at person B, and over person B's shoulder, looking back at person A, while they have a conversation, that is technically the technique of montage. When you see an exterior shot of a city, and then a car driving down the street in the city, and then shot inside the car of a character, you know that character in that car is the same car you saw in the shot before, and the city that they're driving through is the same city you saw in the shot before. Your mind makes those logical leaps for you. That is how montage works. And so the real reason montage of that nature is used, the tr kind of traditional form of montage, is so that Films can jump around in time and space without taking years to get to the point. You know, you see 
you know, the moon, suddenly you know it's nighttime. You see seasons change, you know time has passed. You see a different city, you know something has happened. Even in war movies, this is pretty conventional. Um, in Saving Private Ryan, for example, you have a uh, shot of the company that's looking for Private Ryan walking across a field with the sky behind them. You know that this means this shot means two things. One, obviously, they're walking through a field. That's 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 the surface meaning. But you also know within the context of the movie, this is a symbolic shot representing their journey. They're walking a long way. They are they are traveling. They are on a journey. We see them at night. We see them in different locations. We know a lot of time has passed. We might not know exactly how much time has passed, but we're comfortable with the fact that, okay, they've been out here a while. They've been looking for a long time. This journey is arduous. The problem with a one-shot is you don't get to do that. You can't suddenly, you know, pan back and jump ahead nine miles without it looking completely fake or breaking that artifice of reality that you've been working so hard to achieve. And so while 1917 starts off, and I would say the first hour, uh, right up until, and there's another spoiler, one of the two uh, soldiers on this mission um, is stamped and killed, clicks along at a rate that is pretty believable for a one-shot film. You know, there's a lot of walking, slow, there's a couple big action set pieces, but nothing so over the top that it breaks that kind of illusion. And then a character is killed, the other character is left on his own, burden of this entire mission to complete, and suddenly a car drives up, and he gets in the back of the car, the camera follows him into the car, and we're driving. Then he has to get out of the car, cross a bridge, he gets knocked down unconscious at some point, and suddenly we realize we've crossed about six hours of journey in maybe 15 minutes. And the problem here is that in almost any other movie, that's fine, that's believable. We don't want to, we don't need to see an actor walking for six hours. I mean, unless you're, unless this is an endurance film or, you know, Gus Van Zandt's Gary, we don't want that. But because it's a one-shot film and it's going for realism, there's no way to project that onto the audience. And a, a, good, a sharp contrast here for films that look like they're one-shot to draw and something that did pass time effectively and kind of showed a sort of fantastical, metaphorical way to pass time is uh, Inyaritu's Birdman, where quite often throughout that film we see things that couldn't possibly be literally happening, whether it's Michael Keaton taking off and flying, um, day turning to night throughout the course of somebody walking in and out of a building, and yet we know these are cinematic devices. These are devices that are helping us say, okay, this film is taking place over X number of days. We were at day one, now we're at day two, you know, now we're at day three, four, five. Um, this can be used to reflect Michael Keaton's, the mental state of his character, uh, what's going on with other characters, things like that. The film, while it is immersing us in the long shot moments where we have characters conversing without breaks, walking around, especially during the rehearsals, uh, during the kind of madcap moments when Michael Keaton gets trapped outside in Times Square and is marching around in his underwear, we know that we are immersed in this because it's not cutting. And so even though we recognize, yes, this is cinema, this is an illusion, this is not reality, we're still drawn in because it won't let us fully make that synaptic connection. There's no, okay, I know it's an illusion because we're cutting. It's, I'm, I feel my armrest, I feel the seat behind me, I know I'm in a theater, and yet 
because I can't cut away from Michael Keaton in his underwear with this marching band looking humiliated, I'm I'm there with him. I'm present in that moment more than I would be if it was cutting all over the place. 1917 doesn't try anything like that. It doesn't try to use any sort of symbolic um, shot making, any sort of metaphorical shot making to show that this time has passed, that the journey is being undertaken because there are dry parts of this journey. There are parts of this journey that weren't really only an hour and a half to get from point A to point B. The entire army could have marched with this, these two characters and rescued everybody. There's a reason that these two had to go. It was dangerous. It was long. It was arduous. And by the second hour of 1917, we realize that this illusion that's going so much for realism has actually broken the realism around us so badly because all we can think of is this guy did not possibly get to this place. We know that. We know he could not have gotten there in the time that the film is telling us it took to get there because the film has been so specific about saying, this is how time works. It's exactly as it works for you in the theater. And so if I'm sitting down for two hours and this guy's gone from city to city, fallen off a waterfall, floated down a river, um, had time to get his wounds mended by a French woman he met under siege, I know that that can't be real. Now, in a normal film, like that's again, that's not an issue. You would just have cuts. And in a one-shot film, you can still do this. There's plenty of ways to do this. And this, this does not fall on Roger Deakins, I would say, at all. Roger Deakins is a cinematographer. He did the best with what the director asked him to do. And again, I, I think he probably will win the Oscar for Best Cinematography. And I think he probably deserves to, because a lot of these shots, especially one in the city of Akut, where the city is on fire during a nighttime bombing, is just absolutely stunning. But Sam Mendes, who's never exactly been the most, um, it's a polite way to put it, inventive um, director, doesn't really know how to show us time passing outside of the rules he's given. It's, it's almost as if he's built himself a puzzle and he doesn't know how to get out of the puzzle box he's showing us. And so we end up realizing that, you know, we, we don't see feet marching and see maybe the grass changing under those feet, even in a one shot just to show us time has passed. Or we don't look up at the sky, see it go to black and then see it go back to day. Very easily done in post-production to show, oh good, he's been walking for a long time when we pan back down. We just get this one moment of him blacked out, unconscious, and when he comes to, in the same location, we know, okay, some time has passed, but he hasn't moved, so how has he gotten anywhere? And I think the issue with this is that this could have been, uh, this is never, 1917 was never going to be the be-all, end-all of war films, certainly not the be-all, end-all of World War I films, or even recent war films, um, and, a, and, a, and a great comparison to draw here is uh, Chris Nolan's Dunkirk, um, a movie that, again, you pretty much know how it's going to end. The evacuation of Dunkirk is a historical event. We all know what's going to happen. Uh, uh, using mostly no-name actors, no-name characters, very little dialogue. Um, there is probably more dialogue in 1917, uh, if only to fill the time. Um, the characterization, even though there is more dialogue, I would say is actually weaker than Dunkirk, um, if only because... Nolan puts his characters in more interesting situations in Dunkirk. But Dunkirk, which unfolds under three different timelines, if you've seen the film and if you haven't, you should, is very careful about showing us at all points in time 
this is what's happening. This is where people are. This is why the situation's important. So as we converge onto people getting off the beach, boats getting to the shore, the f- and the dogfight going on overhead, as they all start to converge on one another, we're prepared for that because we've been getting clues the entire time that this is happening. Nolan has given us his set of rules and is saying, this is how I'm going to play this movie. This is how you're going to watch the movie. These rules are teaching you how to watch the movie to gain the most emotional experience out of the movie as is possible. Mendez is kind of trying the same thing, but is essentially saying, these are the rules of the movie. I don't know how to tell the story within the rules I've given myself. And because we learn to watch any movie based on how it's presented to us, whether it's handheld camera, you know, very formal camera work, whether the lighting is ultra bright, ultra gritty, whether the tone is horror or comedy, you know, a movie teaches us how to watch it. So 1917 teaches us that we're watching real life. We're watching real time. We're in this. We're doing all this right now. We're in it with these characters. We're in the shit with them. We're going into the foxholes. We're going into the trenches. We're going into the underground tunnels. And then it also says, sorry, we're also at the end here, and we're just going to have to gloss over how we got there. And as a viewer, it, it's such a deflating realization when you realize they can't pull this off because the only emotion that really is evoked by this film is whatever takes place in you, which is sitting here watching the movie, worrying about these characters and feeling like, because it does you know, feel very much like a video game, um, that you are a part of what is happening on screen. You are artistically involved. You are made complicit in the action. And so to suddenly say, suddenly, you know, as a viewer, you've gone from point A to point B, not just the character, but you as well. It doesn't make any sense. It drops you out of the film. And there's there's really no way to get back into it. So that by the time there's some really incredible set pieces late in the film running across no man's land, you're just kind of thinking this was this was a trick. This was, you know, a sort of a masturbatory exercise of let's see how little shots I can use on this film and uh, we'll see what happens from there. And I think it's just as somebody who's getting ready to watch the Oscars, as somebody who is a huge film fan and had high-ish hopes for 1917, I don't think I, you know, war movies aren't always my thing and this didn't seem like it was bringing a whole lot new to the table, but I was ready to embrace it, you know, in the sense that I would any film that was willing to go out there on a limb and do something interesting. Um, and this film, I really do say, had me for the first hour. I believe I, I checked my phone once early in the movie and realized about 55 minutes had passed, which felt like 30 seconds because it was moving at such a good pace. Um, but to, to find out that it falls back and really is just kind of a trick film, it, it's, it's such a disappointment. And so while I'm sure it will win um, Best Picture come Sunday, I'm also certainly um, going to be disappointed when it does. And I think this will be one of those films, probably like Green Book, uh, maybe The Shape of Water to a little bit. That just, you know, it wins, makes a little bit of a splash, goes away, and, you know, later on we're thinking of other movies, The Parasites, The Once Upon a Times, uh, Little Women, Marriage Story, and of course all the other great movies that didn't get nominated. And we're going to be thinking about, you know, wow, those really were doing something interesting too. And we kind of, you know, Mendez had a trick up his sleeve, and we, I guess, you know, fell for it. Um, and that's that's kind of... Kind of a bummer.